Section 17 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 10, Part 1 of the power of making laws. The cruelty of the Pope and his adherents in this respect in tyrannically oppressing and destroying souls. This chapter treats, one, of human constitutions in general, of the distinction between civil and ecclesiastical laws, of conscience, why and in what sense Ministers cannot impose laws on the conscience. Sections 1 through 8. 2. Of traditions or popish constitutions relating to ceremonies and discipline. The many vices inherent in them. Sections 9 through 17. Arguments in favour of those traditions refuted. Sections 17 through 26. 3 of ecclesiastical constitutions that are good and lawful, section 27 to 32. Sections 1. The power of the church in enacting laws. This made a source of human traditions, impiety of those traditions. 2. Many of the papistical traditions, not only difficult, but impossible to be observed. 3. That the question may be more conveniently explained, nature of conscience must be defined. 4. Definition of conscience explained. Examples in illustration of the definition. 5. Paul's doctrine of submission to magistrates for conscience' sake gives no countenance to the popish doctrine of the obligation of traditions. 6. The question stated. A brief mode of deciding it. 7. A perfect rule of life in the law. God, our only lawgiver. 8. The traditions of the papacy contradictory to the word of God. 9. Ceremonial traditions of the papists. Their impiety substituted for the true worship of God. 10. Through these ceremonies, the commandment of God made void. 11. Some of these ceremonies, useless and childish, their endless variety, introduce Judaism. 12. Absurdity of these ceremonies borrowed from Judaism and paganism. 13. Their intolerable number condemned by Augustine. 14. Injury thus done to the church, they cannot be excused. 15. Mislead the superstitious, used as a kind of show and for incantation, prostituted to gain. 16. All such traditions liable to similar objections. 17. Arguments in favour of traditions answered. 18. Answer continued. 19. 
illustration taken from the simple administration of the Lord's Supper under the Apostles and the complicated ceremonies of the Papists. 20. Another illustration from the use of holy water. 21. An argument in favour of traditions founded on the decision of the Apostles and Elders at Jerusalem. This decision explained. 22. Some things in the papacy may be admitted for a time for the sake of weak brethren. 23. Observance of the popish traditions inconsistent with Christian liberty, torturing to the conscience and insulting to God. 24. All human inventions in religion displeasing to God. Reason confirmed by an example. 25. An argument founded on the examples of Samuel and Manoah. Answer. 26. Argument that Christ wished such burdens to be borne. Answer. 27. Third part of the chapter, treating of lawful ecclesiastical arrangements, their foundation in the general axiom that all things be done decently and in order, two extremes to be avoided. 28. All ecclesiastical arrangements to be thus tested. What Paul means by things done decently and in order. 29. Nothing decent in the popish ceremonies. Description of true decency. Examples of Christian decency and order. 30. No arrangement decent and orderly unless founded on the authority of God and derived from Scripture. Charity, the best guide in these matters. 31. Constitutions thus framed, not to be neglected or despised. 32. Cautions to be observed in regard to such constitutions. 1. We come now to the second part of power, which, according to them, consists in the enacting of laws, from which source innumerable traditions have arisen to be as many deadly snares to miserable souls. For they have not been more scrupulous than the scribes and Pharisees in laying burdens on the shoulders of others which they would not touch with their finger. Matthew 23, 4, Luke 11, 16. I have elsewhere shown, Book 3, Chapter 4, Sections 4 through 7, how cruel murder they commit by their doctrine of auricular confession. The same violence is not apparent in other laws, but those which seem most tolerable press tyrannically on the conscience. I say nothing as to the mode in which they adulterate the worship of God and rob God himself, who is the only lawgiver, of his right. The power we have now to consider is whether it be lawful for the church to bind laws upon the conscience. In this discussion, civil order is not touched, but the only point considered is how God may be duly worshipped according to the rule which He has prescribed, and how our spiritual liberty, with reference to God, may remain unimpaired. In ordinary language, the name of human traditions is given to all decrees concerning the worship of God 
which men have issued without the authority of his word. We contend against these, not against the sacred and useful constitutions of the church, which tend to preserve discipline or decency or peace. Our aim is to curb the unlimited and barbarous empire usurped over souls by those who would be thought pastors of the church, but who are in fact its most cruel murderers. They say that the laws which they enact are spiritual, pertaining to the soul, and they affirm that they are necessary to eternal life. But thus the kingdom of Christ, as I lately observed, is invaded. Thus the liberty which he has given to the consciences of believers is completely oppressed and overthrown. I say nothing as to the great impiety with which, to sanction the observance of their laws, they declare that from it they seek forgiveness of sins, righteousness and salvation, while they make the whole sum of religion and piety to consist in it. What I contend for is that necessity ought not to be laid on consciences in matters in which Christ has made them free, and unless freed, cannot, as we have previously shown, Book 3, Chapter 19, have peace with God. They must acknowledge Christ, their Deliverer, as their only King, and be ruled by the only law of liberty, namely the sacred word of the gospel, if they would retain the grace which they have once received in Christ. They must be subject to no bondage, be bound by no chains. 2. These Solons, indeed, imagine that their constitutions are laws of liberty, a pleasant yoke, a light burden. But who sees not that this is mere falsehood? They themselves indeed feel not the burden of their laws. Having cast off the fear of God, they securely and assiduously disregard their own laws as well as those which are divine. Those, however, who feel any interest in their salvation are far from thinking themselves free so long as they are entangled in these snares. We see how great caution Paul employed in this matter, not venturing to impose a fetter in any one thing, and with good reason. He certainly foresaw how great a wound would be inflicted on the conscience if these things should be made necessary which the Lord had left free. On the contrary, it is scarcely possible to count the constitutions which these men have most grievously enforced under the penalty of eternal death, and which they exact with the greatest vigour as necessary to salvation. And while very many of them are most difficult of observance, the whole taken together are impossible, so great is the mass. How then possibly can those on whom this mountain of difficulty lies avoid being perplexed with extreme anxiety and filled with terror? My intention here then is to impugn constitutions of this description, constitutions enacted for the purpose of binding the conscience inwardly before God and imposing religious duties as if they enjoined things necessary to salvation. 3. Many are greatly puzzled with this question from not distinguishing with sufficient care between what is called the external forum 
and the Forum of Conscience, Book 3, Chapter 19, Section 15. Moreover, the difficulty is increased by the terms in which Paul enjoins obedience to magistrates, quote, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, unquote. Romans 13.5, and from which it would follow that civil laws also bind the conscience. But if this was so, nothing that we have said of spiritual government in the last chapter and after saying this would stand. To solve this difficulty, we must first understand what is meant by conscience. The definition must be derived from the etymology of the term, as when men, with the mind and intellect, apprehend the knowledge of things, they are thereby said to know, and hence the name of science or knowledge is used. So when they have, in addition to this, a sense of divine judgment as a witness, not permitting them to hide their sins, but bringing them as criminals before the tribunal of the judge, that sense is called conscience, for it occupies a kind of middle place between God and man not suffering man to suppress what he knows in himself, but following him out until it bring him to conviction. This is what Paul means when he says that conscience bears witness, quote, our thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing each other, unquote, Romans 2.15. Simple knowledge, therefore, might exist in a man as it were shut up, and therefore the sense which assists men before the judgment seat of God has been placed over him as a sentinel to observe and spy out all his secrets, that nothing may remain buried in darkness. Hence the old proverb, Conscience is a thousand witnesses. For this reason, Peter also uses the, quote, answer of a good conscience towards God, unquote. 1 Peter 3.21 for tranquillity of mind, when, persuaded by the grace of Christ, we with boldness present ourselves before God. And the author of the epistle of the Hebrews says that we have, quote, no more conscience of sins, unquote, that we are freed or acquitted, so that sin no longer accuses us. Hebrews 10.2. 4. Wherefore, as works have respect to men, so conscience bears reference to God, and hence a good conscience is nothing but inward integrity of heart. In this sense, Paul says that, quote, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, unquote, 1 Timothy 1.5. He afterwards, in the same chapter, shows how widely it differs from intellect, saying that, quote, some having put away, unquote, a good conscience, quote, concerning faith have made a shipwreck, unquote. For by these words he intimates that it is a living inclination to worship God, a sincere desire to live piously and holily. Sometimes, indeed, it is extended to men also, as when Paul declares, quote, herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men, unquote. Acts 24.16 But this is said because the benefits of a good conscience flow forth and reach even to men. Properly speaking, however, 
it respects to God alone, as I have already said. Hence a law may be said to bind the conscience when it simply binds a man without referring to men or taking them into account. For example, God enjoins us not only to keep our mind chaste and pure from all lust, but prohibits every kind of obscenity in word and all external lasciviousness. This law, my conscience, is bound to observe, though there were not another man in the world. Thus he who behaves intemperately not only sins by setting a bad example to his brethren, but stands convicted in his conscience before God. Another rule holds in the case of things which are in themselves indifferent. For we ought to abstain when they give offence, but conscience is free. Thus Paul says of meat consecrated to idols, quote, If any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. Unquote. Quote, conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. 1 Corinthians 10, 28-29 A believer would sin if after being warned he should still eat such kind of meat. But however necessary abstinence may be in respect of a brother as prescribed by the Lord, conscience ceases not to retain its liberty. We see how the law, while binding the external work, leaves the conscience free. 5. Let us now return to human laws. If they are imposed for the purpose of forming a religious obligation, as if the observance of them was in itself necessary, we say that the restraint thus laid on the conscience is unlawful. Our consciences have not to do with men, but with God only. Hence the common distinction between the earthly forum and the forum of conscience. When the whole world was enveloped in the thickest darkness of ignorance, it was still held like a small ray of light which remained unextinguished. That conscience was superior to all human judgments, although this which was acknowledged in word was afterwards violated in fact, yet God was pleased that there should even then exist an attestation to liberty, exempting the conscience from the tyranny of man. But we have not yet explained the difficulty which arises from the words of Paul. For if we must obey princes, not only from fear of punishment, but for conscience' sake, it seems to follow that the laws of princes have dominion over the conscience. If this is true, the same thing must be affirmed of ecclesiastical laws. I answer that the first thing to be done here is to distinguish between the genus and the species. For though individual laws do not reach the conscience, yet we are bound by the general command of God, which enjoins us to submit to magistrates. And this is the point on which Paul's discussion turns, namely that magistrates are to be honoured because they are ordained of God. Romans 13.1 Meanwhile, he does not at all teach that the laws enacted by them reach to the internal government of the soul, since he everywhere proclaims that the worship of God and the spiritual rule of living righteously are superior to all the decrees of men. Another thing also worthy of observation, and depending on what has been already said, is 
that human laws, whether enacted by magistrates or the church, are necessary to be observed. I speak of such as are just and good, but do not therefore in themselves bind the conscience, because the whole necessity of observing them respects the general end, and consists not in the things commanded. Very different, however, is the case of those which prescribe a new form of worshipping God, and introduce necessity into things that are free. 6. Such, however, are what in the present day are called ecclesiastical constitutions by the papacy, and are brought forward as part of the true and necessary worship of God. But as they are without number, so they form innumerable fetters to bind and ensnare the soul. Though in expounding the law we have adverted to this subject, Book 3, Chapter 4, Section 6, yet as this is more properly the place for a full discussion of it, I will now study to give a summary of it as carefully as I can. I shall, however, omit the branch relating to the tyranny with which false bishops arrogate to themselves the right of teaching whatever they please, having already considered it as far as seemed necessary, but shall treat at length of the power which they claim of enacting laws. The pretext, then, on which our false bishops burden the conscience with new laws is that the Lord has constituted them spiritual legislators and given them the government of the church. Hence they maintain that everything which they order and prescribe must of necessity be observed by Christian people, that he who violates their commands is guilty of a twofold disobedience, being a rebel both against God and the church. Assuredly, if they were true bishops, I would give them some authority in this matter, not so much as they demand, but so much as is requisite for duly arranging the polity of the church. But since they are anything but what they would be thought, they cannot possibly assume anything to themselves, however little, without being in excess. But as this also has been elsewhere shown, let us grant for the present that whatsoever power true bishops possess justly belongs to them. Still I deny that they have been set over believers as legislators to prescribe a rule of life at their own hands or bind the people committed to them to their decrees. When I say this, I mean that they are not at all entitled to insist that whatever they devise without authority from the word of God shall be observed by the church as a matter of necessity. Since such power was unknown to the apostles, and was so often denied to the ministers of the church by our Lord himself, I wonder how any have dared to usurp, and dare in the present day to defend it, without any precedent from the apostles, and against the manifest prohibition of God. 7. Everything relating to a perfect rule of life, the Lord has so comprehended in his law that he has left nothing for men to add to the summary there given. His object in doing this was, first, that since all rectitude of conduct consists in regulating all our actions by his will as a standard, he alone should be regarded as the master and guide of our life. And secondly, 
that he might show that there is nothing which he more requires of us than obedience. For this reason, James says, quote, He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. Unquote. Quote, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Unquote. James 4, 11, 12. We hear how God claims it as his own peculiar privilege to rule us by his laws. This had been said before by Isaiah, though somewhat obscurely, quote, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Unquote. Isaiah 33.22 Both passages show that the power of life and death belongs to him who has power over the soul. Nay, James clearly expresses this. This power no man may assume to himself. God, therefore, to whom the power of saving and destroying belongs, must be acknowledged as the only king of souls. Or, as the words of Isaiah express it, he is our king and judge and lawgiver and saviour. So Peter, when he reminds pastors of their duty, exhorts them to feed the flock without lording it over the heritage. 1 Peter 5, 2 meaning by heritage the body of believers. If we duly consider that it is unlawful to transfer to man what God declares to belong only to himself, we shall see that this completely cuts off all the power claimed by those who would take it upon them to order anything in the church without authority from the word of God. 8. Moreover, since the whole question depends on this, that God being the only lawgiver, it is unlawful for men to assume that honour to themselves, it will be proper to keep in mind the two reasons for which God claims this solely for himself. The one reason is that his will is to us the perfect rule of all righteousness and holiness, and that thus, in the knowledge of it, we have a perfect rule of life. The other reason is that when the right and proper method of worshipping him is in question, he whom we ought to obey, and on whose will we ought to depend, alone has authority over our souls. When these two reasons are attended to, it will be easy to decide what human constitutions are contrary to the word of the Lord. Of this description are all those which are devised as part of the true worship of God, and the observance of which is bound upon the conscience as of necessary obligation. Let us remember, then, to weigh all human laws in this balance, if we would have a sure test which will not allow us to go astray. The former reason is urged by Paul in the epistle of the Colossians against the false apostles who attempted to lay new burdens on the churches. The second reason he more frequently employs in the epistle to the Galatians in a similar case. In the epistle to the Colossians, then, he maintains that the doctrine of the true worship of God is not to be sought from men, because the Lord has faithfully and fully taught us in what way he is to be worshipped. To demonstrate this, he says in the first chapter, that in the gospel is contained all wisdom, that the man of God may be made perfect in Christ. 
in the beginning of the second chapter, he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And from this, he concludes that believers should beware of being led away from the flock of Christ by vain philosophy, according to the constitutions of men. Colossians 2.10 In the end of the chapter, he still more decisively condemns all kaya, that is, fictitious modes of worship, which men themselves devise or receive from others, and all precepts whatsoever which they presume to deliver at their own hand concerning the worship of God. We hold, therefore, that all constitutions are impious, in the observation of which the worship of God is pretended to be placed. The passages in the Galatians, in which he insists that fetters are not to be bound on the conscience, which ought to be ruled by God alone, are sufficiently plain, especially chapter 5. Let it therefore suffice to refer to them. 9. But the whole matter may be made plainer by examples. It will be proper, before we proceed, to apply the doctrine to our own times. The constitutions which they call ecclesiastical, and by which the Pope, with his adherents, burdens the Church, we hold to be pernicious and impious, while our opponents defend them as sacred and salutary. Now there are two kinds of them, some relating to the ceremonies and rites, and others more especially to discipline. Have we then any just cause for impugning both? Assuredly, a juster cause than we could wish. First, do not their authors themselves distinctly declare that the very essence of the worship of God, so to speak, is contained in them? For what end do they bring forward their ceremonies, but just that God may be worshipped by them? Nor is this done merely by error in the ignorant multitude, but with the approbation of those who hold the place of teachers. I am not now adverting to the gross abominations by which they have plotted the adulteration of all godliness, but they would not deem it to be so atrocious a crime to err in any minute tradition, did they not make the worship of God subordinate to their fictions. Since Paul then declares it to be intolerable that the legitimate worship of God should be subjected to the will of men, wherein do we err? when we are unable to tolerate this in the present day, especially when we are enjoined to worship God according to the elements of this world, a thing which Paul declares to be adverse to Christ, Colossians 2.20. On the other hand, the mode in which they lay consciences under the strict necessity of observing whatever they enjoin is not unknown. When we protest against this, we make common cause with Paul, who will on no account allow the consciences of believers to be brought under human bondage. 10. Moreover, the worst of all is that when once religion begins to be composed of such vain fictions, the perversion is immediately succeeded by the abominable depravity with which our Lord upbraids the Pharisees of making the commandment of God void through their traditions. Matthew 15.3. I am unwilling to dispute with our present legislators in my own words. Let them gain the victory, if they can clear themselves from this accusation of Christ. But how can they do so, seeing they regard it 
as immeasurably more wicked to allow a year to pass without auricular confession than to have spent it in the greatest iniquity, to have infected their tongue with a slight tasting of flesh on Friday than to have daily polluted the whole body with whoredom, to have put their hand to honest labour on a day consecrated to one or other of their saintlings, than to have constantly employed all their members in the greatest crimes, for a priest to be united to one in lawful wedlock, than to be engaged in a thousand adulteries, to have failed in performing a votive pilgrimage, than to have broken faith in every promise, not to have expended profusely on the monstrous, superfluous, and useless luxury of churches, than to have denied the poor in their greatest necessities, to have passed an idol without honour, than to have treated the whole human race with contumely, not to have muttered long, unmeaning sentences at certain times, than never to have framed one proper prayer. What is meant by making the word of God void by tradition, if this is not done, when recommending the ordinances of God only frigidly and perfunctorily, they nevertheless studiously and anxiously urge strict obedience to their own ordinances, as if the whole power of piety was contained in them when vindicating the transgression of the divine law with trivial satisfactions, they visit the minutest violation of one of their decrees with no lighter punishment than imprisonment, exile, fire, or sword, when neither severe nor inexorable against the despisers of God, they persecute to extremity with implacable hatred those who despise themselves and so train those whose simplicity they hold in thraldom, that they would sooner see the whole law of God subverted than one iota of what they call the precepts of the church infringed. First there is a grievous delinquency in this, that one contemns, judges, and casts off his neighbour for trivial matters, matters which if the judgment of God is to decide, are free. But now, as if this were a small evil, those frivolous elements of this world, as Paul terms them in his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 4.9, are deemed of more value than the heavenly oracles of God. He who is all but acquitted for adultery is judged in meat, and he to whom whoredom is permitted is forbidden to marry. This, forsooth, is all that is gained by the prevaricating obedience which only turns away from God to the same extent that it inclines to men. End of section 17